Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. What's going on? Hmm, I've got bad allergies. It's spring. Oh, Christine as well. I, do you think the allergies are more severe because you spent more time inside? And no, then when I you think... go out, it's, it's an explosion? No, it, yeah, I think it's like we open the door. We, you know, we're very lucky to have like a, like a terrace balcony in our apartment. And we open the sliding glass door, like the wind rushes in. It's like a very summery thing. So as soon as I can do it, I do it. And I put all the plants outside. It's like an oasis. But then also like all of the pollen just like blows into You're your face. You're such a stereotype nerd. <laughs> what do you mean? What, what are these complex molecules? My body can't handle them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can only handle silicon. Winter is the best for, yeah, for anyone that doesn't, that, that wishes not to have a body, really. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, we How watched the movie. Yeah, um, well, this is your pick. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Barry Lyndon. I'd never seen it, but I thought, uh, it to me, the first period film that came to mind was this one, and I hadn't seen it, so I was interested yeah, and so, I mean, obviously this is a Kubrick film, and most people have seen the other famous Kubrick films, right? Like, like Clockwork Orange in 2001. And the, Shining, the Shining. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so many. Eyes like, Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut. Um, what's another one? There's, there's a, there, I mean, every other film except Barry Lyndon. In fact, I, didn't, I wasn't even familiar with it. Like when you brought it up, it's like, oh, that's a Kubrick film. I, didn't, I, didn't, I hadn't heard of it. And it's not in like a lot of you know, top five Kubrick films. However, like, I don't know, looking, obviously, like, do one Google search, and you're like, greatest cinematography of all time, like, most award-winning film. <laughs> like, yeah, the cinematography is funny. Should we get the plot out of the way, just very, like, a bird's yeah, it's eye like view? Yeah, like a, a three-and-a-half-hour plot. <laughs> you well, get it out of the way. Yeah, okay, it's a three-and-a-half-hour movie, so we'll just summarize the plot, because I'm it, maybe as our listeners know, to me, the plot is the least important part. It's like of the boy film. meets girl, girl gets. <laughs> well, what happens is there's a, a Irish guy. His name is what's his name in the movie? Because it's not Barry Lyndon. It's Barry. Oh yeah, you're right. Because Lyndon is her name. Um, yeah, he starts off as Barry something, <laughs> and um, he's not that wealthy, and he's kind of an opportunist. He's trying to get ahead. Uh, he has to go in the military. Then he tries to scam away so he can escape then he has he gets captured but he's from ireland then he's in the british military 17th century it's horrible uh he escapes then he becomes sort of a spy and then he learns tricks to move up in society and he ends up marrying a court lady he has a stepson they don't get along uh that creates a lot of drama and he ends up poor and without a leg and and his hey, child you, dies. Well, yeah they had a second child together too That's yeah but it's and, kind of a story of dies. of an of an opportunist loner moving through 18th century Europe. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is it's like you know if you think of the Irish, the Irish were always sort of um, considered like sort of the poorest, most like yeah, denigrated. they were the staff for the English. Yeah, and so you know it's the story of an Irishman struggling to make um, it into the aristocracy and then being rejected by a child. <laughs> of that aristocracy yeah. shot in the leg and ruined. Um, and in a way, like you, I think you could read it through, like it's a satirical film, right? It's kind of a comedy yeah. based on a book. Well, what's funny is uh, I wanted to, because the uh, a big reason why I wanted to see the film the same as you was the photography. So one of the things they did in this film is there's only natural light. Is that true? No, it's not true. Oh, okay. But I it's made it was, to cause it, it's, cause it's made it's, to appear that way. Yeah, because it's famous for the scenes that are candlelit. Yeah, so I I was curious about that too, and then I just scratched a little bit below the surface, and um, so they borrowed you know, a lens from NASA that was could capture more light than any other lens. Well, yeah. So there's famously there are all these like great candlelit scenes, and they are beautiful, and they're lit entirely by candlelight, and that's true. And they used a special lens, a zero point seven like f f 0.7 lens um yeah that was designed to shoot the dark side of the moon um and they retrofitted it onto their their camera their and panavision it's 70 millimeter this film i think yeah they had to, and yeah. they had to do that it was a custom job but when they mounted it on that camera they also removed any depth of field and so they had to be very precise about the focus so the focus um you had to be like in a specific spot so yeah. they actually tracked with a grid using a video camera mm. the like the individuals where they were for each scene so that because they couldn't 
they couldn't get it wrong. Like, but, the, but was, that's a little further into the movie. Yeah. But when the movie started, there's uh, there's a lot of exterior shots of uh, they're not at the aristocratic uh, level yet. So it's it's kind of villages and people with horses and thieves, and it starts off feeling kind of like a Monty Python film because a lot <laughs> of sort of Benny Hill and Monty Python. It seems like they filmed a lot outside in this sort of that's true regular British lighting. Like it's not California light. It's more it feels more everyday. And then you see this period piece, but it's shot in the light that you know from Monty Python, who yeah. also did these scenes. Monty Python did scenes where they couldn't afford horses for the shoot, but they would have two half coconuts and <laughs> bash them into each other to create the sound of a horse when they're walking. And they just show the coconuts in the frame. Um, <laughs> and so I had to sort of escape that mode when I was starting the movie because it just seemed like men in tights, like you know, that thing where... You, you just you're not in in the movie yet so that yeah. took a while for me i mean obviously we didn't see this on on film either we we're watching it i mean my I, I actually had a hard time finding it online i don't know if you did it wasn't I, in I, criterion it, it wasn't, wasn't in amazon it wasn't in amazon here in canada no oh where did so you find I, it in the end I, in the end i had to find it by illicit means oh okay <laughs> like there was literally no other way so you, to get it in, instead in, of, unless i shipped a dvd to my house what about in, when you search uh, on youtube or amazon prime rentals it wasn't there no oh yeah it wasn't Our, the rentals for amazon prime here is very limited anyway oh, so okay. it's this yeah. weird thing where uh, the u.s is so good at entertainment distribution that i forget how hard it is elsewhere well, it's like I subscribe to like $100 worth of streaming services, I think, at this point. I'm like, yeah. can I just watch a classic? <laughs> well, sometimes we, we agree on a movie because we're like, oh, this one's on Netflix and everyone can see it. But then it turns out you don't have the same selection on Netflix. and uh, yeah, Because this yeah. was on Netflix in Europe for a year or something. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I did a search. Is, is Barry Lyndon on Netflix? And I was like, no, Barry Lyndon is not on Netflix. No, but, <laughs> but Netflix buy. has been doing like, they, they take all the auteur filmmakers and then do like oh, all okay. the Tarantino movies for a year and then all the Kubrick movies. And yeah. Well, that's just not convenient for this yeah. podcast. Regardless, anyways, like, we, this, we did choose this as a period. Like, so last week we talked about a period film. This week, I just thought it was fun to, to like, so you're the, I chose the period film last week. Kristen. Portrait of, well, Kristen did, yes, my partner, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. You chose Barry Lyndon as a response. And your criticism of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, of course, was that the language was too precise. The acting was too reserved. And so then you get into Barry Lyndon where that's actually used as a device again. I was curious, like, how you reconciled that. Like, because the, the, like it's a deliberately well, slow movie. I, 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 th I think uh, I, I thought about it, and I think at least in Barry Lyndon, there's some humor. <laughs> That's true. That's and, true. And, and I think the language, I, thinking of Portrait of a Lady in Fire a bit later, I'm a bit more mild in my judgment of the movie, but what I didn't like, yeah, it's funny. That's part of why I'm, we had the whole problem with podcasting because I'll say one thing and the next week I'm like that is completely untrue and doesn't make any sense. That's okay, but I think that it was Barry Lyndon was like it was so slow, like three and a half hours, but also like the pacing of every scene. Like sometimes it'll be one shot that's held for five minutes. Yeah, well, the, it felt like the pacing of the movie was a bit like a, a medieval book where you have one page of text and then a very elaborate uh, illustration, a full page mm. illustration next to it. So it, there was a voiceover that said, Mr. Barry went into the woods and encountered some dangerous men. Mm -hmm. And then he gets robbed, but it's, he's being robbed so politely. May I ask <laughs> yeah. you to raise your hands yeah, yeah, if it's yeah. not a very inconvenience? That's if you turn your back, you will get shot. <laughs> That's a very. Are you aware scene. of the consequences of my proposal? And and all that kind of stuff. Like yeah. and 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 I that think not an acceptable response. Yeah. But it, it yeah. seems like it's all um, an exaggeration of. It was the era of becoming civilized, coming out of the dark ages, yeah. uh, embracing science and enlightened, but at the same time, very brutal and enslaving and colonial. But there's this veneer of uh, higher education and uh, we're bringing the light and therefore we are right. And, <clears throat> and yeah. this is yeah set in Georgian times, which just means that King George was... Um you know the king and i think the at the end of the movie there's a great line right which is like a lot of these people I don't, i'm paraphrasing the line but these people you know fought some of them were liked some of them are disliked but none of it matters anymore because <laughs> they're dead <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
And so I think that's like the great kind of kind of satirical bottle cap. Yeah, the great equalizer. And I, I know that a lot of the the sad thing is that's not even true. If you think of family histories, like mm. if you think of family privilege, it's not that the family. And I think family is a big part of this story. Is like he comes from outside of a family. He marries into one, but he doesn't treat his wife very well. He cheats on her. He makes fun of her. Yeah. And then the family rejects him and ultimately pushes him out. But the family lives on, even if 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 the members of that family die, their family lives on. Yeah, it's kind of funny because like. You know, I think there's some criticism of how he uh, foolishly spent his money, but then the way he's spending his money is by participating in charitable actions and in like art patronage. And I was like, hmm, that's like actually seems pretty good. good (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, so like, and the charitable thing at the time, of course, was he raised money. I think they allude to it for like an army in uh, the colonies or something like that. So it's not really like great, but for that time, would have been like a very charitable yeah, but thing they, to do. they said things like, "Oh, in, in, what you're talking about is he." There's different acts to the movie, different uh, periods. One period he's in the military, he's trying to make his way there. Then there's a period where he's kind of a spy, and he becomes a a con man with a card game. And then there's the period where he seduces the countess and moves in that world. Mm-hmm. And then his mom lives with him in the court, and she starts saying. Well, you have to get a title of your own because if if your wife dies, the family's going to reject you, and you, you'll have nothing, and your mm-hmm. son will have nothing. So then he meets. Do you remember the, the title of the man that he has to uh, appease? Oh, like there's a yeah, the that older gentleman. Like the, yeah, he's like friends with the king, so he's like you know mm-hmm. we'll only allow in a few people, but if you do certain things for me, I, I can definitely make it happen. Yeah, and so he then has to buy real estate at 10 times the price. He, it's not just frivolous spending. Like They just basically squeeze money out of him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. So I guess like there's that tension throughout the film. And then I think... Um, but, but there is a thing... One of, you know, I'm always about aesthetics and mood and all that stuff. So one of the things I found appealing is I saw the beginning of the movie and I thought, oh, I really like the balance of architecture and nature in, in villages. And you have a few stone structures and you have wooden fences and not too many people and that looks like it's in balance. Mm-hmm. But then when you get to the courts, I found all those interiors very ugly. And I know oh, really? I've, 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 I've been brought up in museums to respect paintings and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But this, this uh, do you know this term uh, horror faqui? It's a... No. It's a term where you're afraid of empty space. And uh, so when you look at a castle like that, every surface, every area has to be ornate and filled with some kind of human expression. I see. You can't just have a blank wall or even in a painting, it has to be filled with detail. Then it would look like a factory, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so to me, there was this weird thing where it's like, why aren't you happy having a little farm? Which right now is like... Mm. what everybody seems to be like, wow, I wish I could escape the city and this empty life and have a meaningful life in the country and raise a few chickens. Because there's that beautiful scene of him cutting wood with the chickens. And is that yeah. what? Yeah. yeah, like what was wrong with that? And so that's that's one of the ironic things of ambition. And like, it, oh, I, thought, yeah. I, I have to work really hard so I can retire and live on a little farm. My interpretation of your, your emotion, though, is tied to like the history of, of making images. And it's like the bucolic scene that you're romanticizing is one also that the film drew its inspiration from the history of painting. Yeah. yeah. From. And so the, well, that's the, the only know, document we have of that time. That's true. But I, that, that image, I find, because this weekend, Kristen and I were looking for, let's take a, a, like a drive into the country. And we're like, I was, she was like, here are some selections. She chose like five different places we could go. And, and there was different little wee towns like that, right? Where it was like, you know, the rolling hills against the backdrop of a cobblestone farmhouse. And, you, and then you realize, wait a second, why am I romanticizing this image? And it has either something to do with the natural state of, of mind, like of the human mind, or something to do with like social conditioning that we crave these, you know, what we believe well, to be. The- it's also exotic. So that's part mm-hmm. of it that uh, it's so far from our daily life that it's very interesting. Like mm-hmm. for you to fly to Paris, it's not that different from Toronto. It is different, but you know. But then for you to go to a little, 
village in the hills of uh, Nepal on the mountaintop. That's very different from what you know. Well, I think one argument a painter would make is that the landscape of, you know, the traditional landscape is one that's quite dynamic. So what paintings try and capture is like, you know, I, I think I just want to segue into kind of, we don't have to segue into it, but the lighting uh, in this film that we we started talking about does have an impact on the landscape. And I was re- yeah, I was reading yeah. about this film. It's that kind they, of an anti-Hollywood lighting because... Uh, well, Every it, movie it, yeah. in Hollywood and cowboy movies, it's like very hard shadows on a and a clear blue sky, and this is more foggy and misty in English countryside. And so it was shot, yeah, in Ireland and England, and and apparently the weather was changing so much that they had to like continuously adapt. And in some shots, you can see the lighting is changing throughout the shot, like that mm. shot you referred to with the chickens and the cutting wood. If you actually fast forward through that shot, you'll see like the sun and clouds pass over the the scene, right? Yeah, and we have a Dutch word for that, uh, wisselvallig. It, it it really means you can have the four seasons in one day. Oh, really? It it, it can be. It doesn't mean that literally, but uh, there's no mm-hmm. English word for it. But you're like, what kind of clothes should I wear today? It's like, well, you need a, a fur coat and uh, swim shorts. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting when you apply that in a city, it's kind of like, it can sometimes be nice, obviously, the way cities get lit, but the country, you know, almost becomes like a living painting and the, and the way the shots in this particular yeah. movie are composed, it's pretty hard to, re- like, it feels so painterly, like, and but, there's a certain... I don't know. But there's an Icarus theme in this movie where he is working his way up and he could at some point say, okay, I'm good, let's enjoy. Mm-hmm. But he keeps wanting to go higher and higher and then he burns his wings. <laughs> yeah, so you're like as he gets higher and higher, we get into the palaces, which, by the way, were real palaces that had tours like passing through them even back then in 1975. Like okay. Yeah, because it was shot in 1975, so there was tourism then too, I hate to tell you. <laughs> but... Uh, um, but what's cool is they, so they didn't light, you were, you were making a comment about, well, it's all natural light. Well, what they did is they looked at each room and they looked at the natural light and then they tried to recreate that light. And the reason for that is Kubrick famously like is a very, he's like a control freak director. I'm sure you're, you know, our, our mm-hmm. listeners are aware of that. Like, uh, the shining is like, you know, people are still studying each frame of it or whatever. But he typically would take a day to shoot one scene. That was very like normal. They would never shoot more than one scene in a day. And that was because he wanted to get everything just perfect. And yeah, it's this weird moment in film history where studios gave a lot of money to an auteur filmmaker. Yeah, but if you've ever been on set, like, you know, interior shots, you need it to look like morning for like nine hours. So how are you going to do that? Well, they'd put lights in the windows, and that so that's so what they did is they shot they got the reference shot of what does it look like when there is no light and then they recreated that meticulously well you need you need about five times the light for it to look like uh what it would look like to the human eye when you're there in the morning yeah if you would film the natural morning light in an interior it would just look like a night shot yeah yeah and oftentimes obviously what you record on camera is nothing like what we perceive through our eyes you know obviously like we've talked about lenses on this podcast before before but like a 50 millimeter lens is the closest we can get to kind of what we see through our eyes well and then in terms of angle but not in terms of light maybe yeah no exactly Yeah. yeah and and so um there's there's all these like you know film has to play with this idea of perception and whether you know the camera itself is supposed to take on your position as the the spectator or or not Anyway, I wanted to get to the, the but candlelight But did it make stuff. you feel like you were there? Did it make you uh, feel like you experienced that time? Well, what I wanted to say, yeah, about this film was like, what was striking to both Kristen and I, we watched it together because um, it was very, <laughs> she was willing to watch it. But we were both like, wow, like this is like the look of the film is so contemporary. It's almost like all films that we watch today are modeled. Because if you think about 1975, I'm pretty sure if we looked at like the top movies from 1975 and we watched them, none of them look like this. Mm. Um, and probably if we watched in 1980, none of them look like this. In 1985, none of them look like this. But at like some point... It did have a bit of the feel of like, there's a certain period of fashion photography with soft focus lenses and candlelights and sort of romance novels. And there's like a 70s vibe. Well, I'm even reminded like in the early 2000s, photographers like, you know, Ryan McGinley come along and they're like, 
yeah, like flash photography. That's what that's like what natural light looks like. Mm. You know, like what the nature of natural light has shifted with our understanding yeah, yeah, yeah. of culture. But um, I thought like the way lighting was used is the way like as an art director, I've often like I've literally written this in like all, like style guides for like the last fifteen years. Like subject should only be lit by natural light. And like and yeah. and why do I state that? Because like anything else looks kind of like like you said earlier, like, like not real, like you're not there and it's not a real person. Yeah. It's overproduced. And it, but, but I do think uh, because it was shot on a very sensitive film to work with low light, it, it's a bit grainy, but then it's 70 millimeters. So it's not so grainy, but there, there's a dreamlike quality to it. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is like outdoors because of the overcast. I think you do get this, but also indoors. Um, Kubrick apparently put gels over the windows it was actually a wax paper, not a gel. And it wasn't Kubrick. Obviously, there's a lighting director. But um, Kubrick liked the fact that this paper created a halo around the windows that yeah, gave it yeah, a more yeah. dreamlike feel. Yeah. So, you're, you know, that wasn't, a, that wasn't a mistake. If you look at The Shining and, and also Space Odyssey, he works a lot with walls of light that are actually in the frame. So there's oh. a scene uh, in, in The Shining where he's at the bar, and I think you see like an ocean of blood coming into the room. Yeah, you yeah. know the scene? Of course, yes. Like the, <laughs> no, the, I missed the, that one. The, the two walls on the side of the bar are basically one big uh, flat light. Yeah. But it's like part of the interior. And then in Space Odyssey, there's that end scene where the whole floor and ceiling are a source of light. Oh, right, yeah. And so I always notice that uh, I think when you're filming, you often have these sort of big flat lights that are mimicking daylight, and he just puts them as part of the frame, a part of the interior, a part of the scene. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, like, it's really remarkable, though, that the candlelight scene. So, he, uh, like, the if we get back to the candlelight thing, he had wanted to do candlelight in a scene of any kind as, like, just, like, a bucket list thing as a director. Like, this is the hardest thing in the world to do. Can we do it? And I was just thinking about that, like, just think of ourselves as like whoever's listening, you, Raphael, like if you've ever been to a dinner party or had dinner with someone over candlelight. You can you hardly out, see your food. Yeah. yeah, but you've pulled out your phone and you've tried to capture something. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? The twinkle yeah. of like a candlelight in a friend's eye that's really excited by the conversation. And the other thing about candlelight that happens is you're really focused on the subject across from you. Because the rest it's of the room is completely light. dark. It's also moving light. So it, I think in, in cinema, anything you add that adds movement that is not from the actors, but so whether yeah. the room is rotating or a cigarette smoking, it adds a lot of uh, liveliness. Yeah. 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 And so I think, you know, it's just the ultimate challenge. Um, but the other thing is, is it... And Stanley said, let's do it. Well, the other thing is like a lot of the shots, obviously, I mentioned were like influenced by... Um, painting and obviously in painting there's this kind of you know I'm gonna butcher this because I'm not a, Kristen's probably listening and a former painter thinking like Jeremy don't butcher this painting history but the idea of chiaroscuro in a in a in a painting of like having this you know the subject of the the painting come forward with great contrast in the background yeah, receding and, and, and into like total a, darkness a clear direction of light instead of an overall lighting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like being, uh, yeah, exactly. A single point of light that light, you know, lights a subject and really like, it's almost like they pop out. It's like one of you, those that, things that it's it's like the invention of the iPhone and then Samsung copying it. And then afterwards, you're like, yeah, of course, that's how phones look. What what else could Samsung have done? But <laughs> right, bef- right. And so it's the same with Chescury. We're so used also from photography, like, oh, yeah, of course, there's a, a film noir and there's a dark light and it's coming through yeah. the window. And, but somebody had to think of that. If you if you look at that's what I was saying. This this old format of a uh, a handwritten book with uh, illustrated pages. Uh, none of those had everything was like a comic book, like even lighting with with black outlines. Yeah, yeah, and I think like you know, and, and that would be interesting for someone to do a film with isometric perspective and uh, figures in the in the background are as large <laughs> as the figures in the foreground and sort of. That would be an interesting film. On film or like in yeah, digital? Yeah, like a period piece, but that looks like illustrations from the 1200s. Yeah, that would be interesting. You don't see that very often. And in perspective, the way we, it was a mat, like that's part of the thesis of this this argument that I'm trying to make very poorly. <laughs> but it's like, the, if the history of painting informed this film, and you've said on the podcast many times that, uh, 
you know, painting evolving into a painterly medium. Um, film, the, yeah, film, uh, cinema. Di- yeah, sorry, cinema evolving into a painterly. What did I say? Painting evolving into a painterly. Medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cinema evolving into a painterly medium is, you know, is wasn't. I don't know if it was inevitable, but like, um, you know, you could make the argument that image making is in a constant state of evolution. Um, but when it when it's directly but this is derived, definitely a, a pre digital film. Yeah, yeah, and but and it's directly referencing and like you know the way you make a film is you shoot like location photos and then you know you kind of plan out the storyboards and so you're you're often working actually with two dimensional still compositions before you get into the room to shoot the actual actors. Um, this takes it to the nth degree in terms of like the composition. Yeah. I thought this is kind of the opposite of Uncut Gems, where Uncut Gems, they don't even tell the actors that the camera's running or not, and uh, they don't tell the extras that they're extras, so nobody even knows they're being filmed, kind of. And, no, yeah. And it creates a grittiness and, and realism that fits this time. Yeah. And then this creates a weird realism. For me, the, 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 the most interesting stylistic thing was the English language and then... Uh, as opposed to the violent action. So that what is, what's being said and what's being done are completely different. Yeah. But I mean, I'd just like to finish that point. Like I mentioned it being contemporary. It's contemporary in so much as it uses realistic lighting. And it seems like contemporary is tied to the representation representation of reality. Right? But, but so Kubrick's like, films kind of tend to be classic. I feel like, the, mm-hmm. like Space Odyssey feels... I wouldn't say it feels contemporary, but it doesn't feel old-fashioned either. It's just it becomes an icon, and then it's it's right. uh, it's it's Im- immune to trends. It's immune to trends because it wasn't following a trend, so you can't say like, "Oh, that right. looks so seventies." Well, I was just gonna say like, obviously in the nineties, Dogma '95, and you know the wedding and films like that. Then say like, "Fuck this!" Like attention to detail on the on the camera. Just pick up any old video camcorder and start shooting, and that's reality. And then I mentioned like the Ryan McGinley thing, like you know, like. That's just like it's flash photography. It's garbage. Like that's what that's reality, you know. And so I, I don't know. I think I, I thought I was thinking about that as I was looking at these like five minute kind of paintings. Yeah. Slowly pass by. Yeah, I'm always for uh, researching any position. So if somebody wants to research meticulous things and go to the extreme, or someone wants to film spontaneous things and go to the extreme, uh, I'm happy that all these different variations exist. So, yeah, yeah, no, I think I, I mean, I'm not it, taking a, a position here. One, bad, one of the things I noticed with Kubrick's films is that he doesn't use movie stars. Mm. Uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are the exception, but all the older movies, I think most people can't name the lead actor from Space I know. Odyssey. In fact, I thought that Barry in this film was Channing Tatum. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, looks I looked so at much the, like I, Channing Tatum. I think the actor's Obviously name is impossible. O'Neill. He's he's uh, Irish himself, and he was also a boxer. So I think there was a, a sort of typecasting. Yeah, but, he was a, he was a boxer, but um, I, but he didn't really have a movie career after that. And I can't name the lead actor from Space Odyssey or the the actor from Clockwork Orange. He did some movies, and he became a movie star again when he was older and kind of like a Bond villain. But uh, do you know his name? The the actor from Clockwork Clock Orange. Yeah, mm, there's something the right like the Stanley Kubrick cor- curse that is similar to I think Bond girls usually don't have a career after a Bond movie. There's certain hmm. types of movies that are hard to get out of. But it could just be actually the casting. So like you know, um, I was listening to something. I feel like uh, this maybe it was yesterday about about the film and the casting of the little boy or something like that, and like. He in the casting he broke all the rules and that's why they they hired him. Okay. Like that. Like, well, it, th- you know? there's other types of directors. Like, have you seen American Graffiti? The, yeah, the George Lucas film about teenagers in the fifties. And in a weird way, like everyone in that movie became a big movie star. I think Harrison Ford was in it, and um, I'm blanking on the names. But there's there's a certain type of people who cast people as kids and they all become stars. And Kubrick is the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that there there is what, what in I, this movie. just just to, what I mean by stars is I'm not talking about whether they're good or bad actors and whether they fit the story or not. I'm talking about people who uh, become more famous than the movie itself. And with Kubrick, it's the movie you know, and not the actors. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not talking about fame in a shallow way, but I'm. I think he. But you're not going to the movie for the actor. Well, either. I I think he doesn't want 
the baggage of the personality of the actor to mess with the story. So you don't want it to be like, oh, that guy had a drug problem and that's why he made that movie to clean up mm -hmm. his image and blah. He, he doesn't want to be distracted or it doesn't but want the worth, audience to be distracted. It's maybe worth noting though that like when this movie came out, it wasn't well received. Um, not that many people saw it. Even like, uh, it was like Roger Ebert apparently didn't, you know, gave it like three and a half or something that's, out of five. That's why I, so often when I hear people being upset about reviews as artists, it's like these people don't know. It's just the opinion of one person. Like, if, but, if, and the, but reviews were later revised, right? You know, I know, but it, it just, it, it, to me as a creator or an artist, it, uh, I would tell anyone, like, people's opinions change all the time, and whoever writes that review is just a single person. And, well, you know, I change my mind about stuff all the time. It's like, oh, I love that movie. Oh, I don't like it anymore. And I, Opinions are cheap. Right, yeah. That's well, why you we know, do this podcast. Yeah. I think also with, you know... Um, I mean, you could argue the other thing. You could say maybe it's not a great movie, but it's you know because Kubrick's tied to it. We're like we're we're willing to reevaluate it. Um, you know, and how many times? You well, know, whether it's it, a great movie or not is maybe not the right question. Yeah, I mean, for for me, as long as there's something interesting to talk about. But as you know, I could talk about Sonic the Hedgehog. So, <laughs> so I really have. Like yeah, but a, it, like it, it was something I wanted to see, and I did yeah. think at times the story was predictable. Like yeah, that's probably gonna happen. That's probably gonna happen. But yeah, it still created a mood, and it it did make me think about living in that time, and um, it made me think a lot about ambition and the idea of progress, and whether we've progressed from that time or not, or which parts of life have we progressed and which parts have regressed. Yeah, um, I mean, meanwhile, Ryan O'Neill is, by the way, the name of the actor. And, That's like uh, the most Irish name of all time. Yeah, 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 Irish boxer. And he did have a career. He still does. He was in a movie in 2018 called Film Worker. So um, mind you, most, of, most of his movies are two stars and below. <laughs> they include no movie I've ever heard of. The, well, isn't that uh, weird? That, that's what I mean. That it's, it's weird for a, an iconic film director to pick people that are perfect for their film and afterwards can't do anything. He was in A Bridge Too Far, The Driver, and oh, Irreconcilable Differences. I think that's pretty pretty well known. Okay. Well, I don't uh, know. Yeah, then Zero Effect. Malibu's Most Wanted in 2003. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, I don't know the, the details of his casting yeah. style, but he probably had access to every actor. Because of course you want to work with Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, yeah, I don't know where you want to go next with this, but like, um, well, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of uh, being transported to that time, and then how you feel about the time you're living in, and mm. the, sort of, it, I'm, I'm always interested in this idea that there's a mantra of progress, and it's not questioned mm -hmm. not much, and like, uh, we're saving lives, we're making people more productive, but. I'm always jealous of the focus that people had in that time when I see those films. It's same with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm like, wow, they really had time to focus. The, like, they, it was almost like they were living in a pandemic <laughs> in the space. <laughs> yeah, but without an iPhone. I mean, they're very bored at points in the movie, and uh, they do, like, you know, there's, there's reckless consumption to fill the boredom. Of yeah, and they had a lot of people in the court, so maybe that's what I... My father grew up on a farm, so it was kind of a pre-industrial life. Not exactly, but, you know, it, it's it's as close as I can get to so asking what was it like before a mediated life, because they didn't have a TV or radio. And mm -hmm. I was like, weren't you bored? He's like, no, we're doing chores all day long, and then <laughs> we had to go to church, and then you just fall asleep dead tired. There was no time to be bored. And they were really yeah. busy. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point, right? Like, if Yeah, like if doing laundry was a... Big chore, and you need. And I think yeah. <clears throat> I think that's some of the satire of the film, right? Like, and um, you know, it, once you have the aristocracy, you have that means you have people that are doing work that they're not doing, right? That they're essentially expropriating labor from, right? Like to use a, a Marxist term, but they're they're benefiting on the backs of others. Well, and, yeah, and it's, it's like when you think about how hard it was at that time to wash clothes. Like you had to rub it against one of those yeah. washboards for. 10 minutes for each garment and I don't know yeah and I'm talking about my dad growing up uh, in a family of 16 children and they didn't have a washing machine until he was five or six or seven so imagine you're already washing clothes for seven kids by yeah. hand it's yeah. 
Yeah, it's a meaningful <laughs> invention. But I mean, the it, like again, it's a rem- like a reminder. This is set in England, and that, therefore, like most of the wealth, um, even at that time, would have been off the back of colonial, you know, pursuits. So conquering other lands. Yeah, and they and they they use the veneer of civilization to justify that, like we're bringing. But there's murder on the other side of it. Yeah, but they're saying it's worth it because we're going to make Christians out of these people and it'll be better for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But meanwhile, you know, it's an opportunity for them to sit around the gambling table. I love that, like, the, the scenes where... He where where he's kind of rising and he's rising by taking advantage of these wealthy people who waste their money and and you know on gambling and there's that one scene where the guy they actually cheat him but like he's got all these women hanging off of him it's like it might as well be a hip hop scene or something yeah, like or a James music Bond video scene, yeah. or John Swan scene or something it's like and so there's people dripping all over the place and he's like he bets all he has and then he loses. And he's like, it didn't matter anyway. And but then the best part is like he, you know, hasn't paid his debt because it's on credit, you know. So he's using credit like as if it's Las Vegas or something. And the next day they have to sword fight, you know, f- to like prove that it's he's worthy of. So him and and Barry like sword fight like to prove that uh, if Barry wins, he's an honorable person worthy of paying. I, I kept thinking like. Fresh books should make an ad like this where you had to sword fight to get an invoice paid. Yeah. But it was like it was <laughs> it was pretty funny. He's like, okay, you are he so Barry wins. He's like, okay, you are honorable. I will pay you the money. As if honor is equated with his ability to sword fight, right? Like that was the only way he could prove that he wasn't cheating. It's like now I trust you because you won at sword play. I don't know. I found that it, um, it is also interesting how much of history is a construct and like were people really talking like that? Were they really <laughs> behaving like that? And maybe they really were. And that's what I mean with the idea of progress. If we're... If, well, don't forget... Have, I, have you yeah, seen Idiocracy? Yeah, a long time ago. And you want to... I think we want to review Yeah, but the the sort of this idea of like slowly language is devolving and we're putting yeah. the word like and literally 10 times in every sentence and it's not needed. And so there's a general idea of progress, but maybe... A hundred thousand years later, it would be like, oh yeah, human brain capacity was at its peak in the 18th century. They could hand paint anything photographically. They could recite uh, long documents and yeah, they could uh, do their hair in a ma- in their amazing hair. <laughs> they, they had so <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Or we'll look back and be. I, I have no idea, but it's it's interesting yeah. that the maybe progress is not linear. I don't know. I think that you know one of the th- one of the reminders is like like apparently William Hogarth, who's a painter, was like like an inspiration aside from the book for the film and its style overall. And specifically, Hogarth was like known for painting satirical portraits of the aristocracy of that era, right? And so I think <clears throat> the satirical edge of the film. I think if you're a kid, you would not read into the satire, but you mentioned that it felt like a Monty Python film. I think that's the correct reading that, you know, if you have experienced the artifice of wealth and prestige, then you can chuckle throughout this movie. Yeah. You know, because you're like, of course, it's so ridiculous, right? Yeah. It's 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 like you're so far past survival. Yeah. Yeah. And like none of this, like, I think it's, Early on in the movie, there's that scene where they're going to war, and it's just so funny because, <clears throat> you know, it's just like a thousand guys marching at a line of enemies with their guns out shooting. Yeah. <laughs> they like, they just, and they just, okay, walk we lost 20%. At a regular, it was a good oh, day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we lost some people. Oh, well. And it's like the general's right in the front, and he gets shot right away. You're like, yeah, did you not think that was going to happen? Seems like life and death is so random. And it's therefore, the life like, of a gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it also echoes like, not only is life and death random, but like, you know, in, I mean, ultimately his his success or failure is somewhat random too. But for a wealthy few elite that don't have to be on the front lines, there's nothing random about their, their you know, their futures, right? It's sort of established. Yeah. Meanwhile, everyone else is kind of fighting it out in this like futile What you don't see in trench. this movie is, is the, the sort of farmer class that is just dealing with the hard daily labor and then... Uh, well, you Hard do. You work. have the guy, the guy yeah. that takes care of the horse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like the maid. That, that, but that's one of the things I think is is not documented very well throughout history. Is like how hard was it for the working class at what point? Mm. Like, I think the the slaves in Egypt were having a pretty rough life. But I don't know if there was a moment in sort of uh, 
farm life in Europe where the the landowners were not so greedy and they had a pretty good life? Or was it the famines were so unpredictable and so many plagues and war that it was... It, it, what I'm talking about is this idea of progress that we're fed. Is, is it really a better life now? Because mm-hmm. I, I don't have any records of like how good was life in the 12th century. Yeah, I mean, the there, regular there's person. Li- I mean, there's definitely literature. Um, yeah, but I, th- I feel like that all the documentation of the time was focused on the upper class, like the, the detailed paintings and the books and the, well, well, one the, of the bank records. Is, yeah, to have the, to have the space to create art, you needed a patron, and that patron was usually someone in power, right? So um, yeah. There are exceptions, obviously, to that rule, but I think that's a it's a fair point, which is like even to entertain oneself with satire, um, you know, would would is potentially you already have the privilege of being able to scoff at. Um, what, what, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about is the idea of style or aesthetics and beauty, mm-hmm. and uh, when you see a movie like Rashomon and the the Japanese courts, and I'm like, oh, they probably ate really great food, and I really like their kimonos, and I really like the their interiors, and it's a bit more humble, but still very detailed and beautiful. And there's a scene in Barry Lyndon where the M- Mrs. Lyndon is in a bathtub that is also a sofa. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Like the yeah, back yeah. the back of the bathtub is is uh, fabric and cushion, yeah. and I'm like that. It probably existed, and it looks like a terrible idea. It's probably kind of cold. And <laughs> it, yeah, it's horrible. And, and so that to me, it's a bit. It's a bit like, it it wasn't new money, but it feels a bit like new money. Where it's like, oh, we have all this money. Let's just make ridiculous inventions that are actually uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, that's true. And, and so there's a there's a, maybe not the word wisdom, but there's a way of like enjoying life and using resources. Uh, that, you know, some people are just really, some cultures are really good at allocating the right, let's say like Italians are good at food. Like when I see the courts in this movie, I'm thinking they're probably eating pigeon pie or something. And and it, like some people die of gout. Like that's not wisdom. Yeah. Like when you haven't, when you don't have that life of the balance between exercise and food and beauty and practicality and sort of like have a nice, thing going on i have a hard time putting it to words but yeah yeah. i mean i think like you know the neoliberal counter-argument is like you know you know why should we deny people um you know the accumulation of wealth and and possessions no no but but that's not what i'm saying i'm saying Mm -hmm. there's an upper class in different cultures Mm -hmm. maybe what i'm saying is if you spend a thousand bucks for a hotel night in new york they try to mimic this oh i see and if yeah, you spend a thousand bucks in Japan for a hotel night, it's to me it yeah, feels yeah, yeah. more thought through and like it actually makes sense. Or if you go to an art auction or something, you know, or like some kind of a ball event, they're still trying to recreate yeah, this yeah, yeah. bizarre opulence, like yeah. chandeliers with light bulbs instead of candles. And the chandelier actually had a practical purpose, probably to light a huge room, um, you know, with just candlelight. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't disagree. It's it's bizarre. Um, I mean, maybe what I'm trying to say is like, did you see those scenes and we we're like, oh, I'd like an office like that. Well, like I, I'll say exceptionally, there was one scene where he's sitting on a, a sofa, a very long, long sofa that's like for a hundred people with his son, and behind him there's like um, a painting that's larger than my apartment. And in that scene, that the the scale of that painting and the way Kubrick shot it. You know, you're like, wow, that must have been, that's impressive. Like, it's almost like virtual reality or something. Like, you felt like you could walk into like the holodeck. painting. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Have you ever yeah, been exactly. in one of those hand-painted panorama rooms where you have a 360 painting, a 360-degree painting, but from the 1700s or something? No, I've read about them, but, it's, you know. It's, it's quite a, an out-of-body experience, like, because you're moving around, but the perspective is not changing, so it's kind of disorienting, but it... It's that thing you're talking about. It feels really virtual. You really feel immersed. Yeah, and I just like, there's that. There's a couple scenes where they're wandering around talking about paintings and things, and he's like, I love how they've captured the color blue and things like that. And <laughs> you could read that as like, you know, the satire of it. But also like, if I rewind to that period and then fast forward to where I'm at now, like I'm often like buying the television set, you know, based on its ability to Such represent the blues. color blue. Yeah, Yeah. well, yeah, certain pigments were more expensive, so they ended up purple clothing you were rich but like what is this desire to 
capture and hold on to the perception well, you have of the reality. luxury of having a photo camera, but the, they didn't. And so it's, it appears to be a deep human desire to freeze time. Well, I'm going to make a, like a bizarre counter argument, which I think is like, um, I say bizarre just because it's like solipsistic. It's like from my own head. But I think as one <clears throat> gets older, like one's senses start to dull and like you're desperately trying to stop time. Yeah. And like these are objects that have managed to figure out how to stop time, like a painting that lasts 500 years or something. Yeah. That's the reason yeah. why you would get your portrait painted like last week or take a picture in a moment. Like, why are people so obsessed with taking photos of the skyline of the cities they live in, right? Like, these are things that they feel like are changing too quickly. This, you know? this question is in a dangerous territory where you go into the why question, Damn and it. it's unanswerable. Is it unanswerable? I think Because you it? get to, like, why are we alive? And well, at the end of the movie, I think it, he, he kind of he states that, right? He's like, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. He, remember, there's also the at the funeral for the boy... There's a remarkable line that the um, the the clergyman or whatever his name is, the, you know, the guy that, that uh, somehow they have like a, what is his name? You know, the guy that they fire later on? He's of the church. Oh, yeah. Anyway, the, the, he was the tutor for the children. But he's also religious in some manner. Yeah. Anyway, he's saying like, you know, you come into this world. He's the with, intellectual. Yeah. You come into this world with nothing and we have we know for certain you leave you can't leave with anything either so the worldly possessions that you you know accumulate none of this really matters as you come and go um into the the afterlife or whatever yeah. and i think like it's not a why thing so much as like a control thing and i think coming back to stanley kubrick and thinking about how he was such a control freak over every image and every detail um, you know, like apparently they're in the, when they're in that, um, horse-drawn carriage, when they shot that scene, the horses were like making too much noise or something. So he had this crew pull the carriage. <laughs> the, so the lengths that he would go and apparently the crew would like, cause it was exhausting through the day that a lot of the crew would kind of got exhausted and had to stop working. <laughs> so like he would just go to ridiculous lengths to get the shot and get it perfect. Yeah. And why, you know, what is, why does, wh- it's, where is that it's desire It's interesting that I think any director has to be somewhat crazy. You can't be a reasonable person and direct a film. Yeah, because but you'd be like, Kubrick the is the craziest one. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, but the, why am it, I trying so hard? There's a movie I've been wanting to review, but uh, you think it's uh, not safe to even say the title, but uh, the, the Werner Herzog film about little people. Oh. And, uh, and they, there's a scene where he wants to, them to jump into a field of cactuses. And they're all like, no, I don't want to do that. And then he says, you do that, I'll eat a shoe, and then so later there's a movie where Werner Herzog eats a shoe. Oh, and they never show them jumping into cactuses. That's <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> no, he also jumped into the cactuses. But uh, <laughs> okay. it, I'm, I'm saying even even someone who films in a more uh, underground way with less uh, budget, whatever, they still like. We have to get the shot. We just have to get it. Well, my mother, uh, like, I, there's this quote from my mom that uh, she now attributes, like, she loves that I remember this quote of her. Because sometimes we th- say things and they're meaningless to us, but they me- it meant something to me. I remember going to, to lunch with my mom at, like, this little bistro that she has gone to for years and years. And she was rude to the waitstaff. It's a cute little McDonald's. Like, you know when you go out for dinner with, with your parents and, like, they're, they're rude or they do something <laughs> yeah. socially awkward and you're just so embarrassed? Anyway, I said to my mom, like, why are you always, like, why are you rude or why did you behave that way? Like, it was so embarrassing for me. And she said to me, like, and I, I just, like, without hesitation, Jeremy, when you've had the best, having second best, you can't ever have second best after you've had the best. You're always trying to get back to the best. Mm. And um, and I was like, holy shit, that makes like your, I mean, it doesn't really justify you being rude to the rate sweet staff, but like, in a way, I understand a little bit more because you feel like you, and even in this film, right, like it's a rise and fall, right? Yeah. He tries to achieve this, this like you said, this Icarus yeah. greatness, and then he can never but quite the, hold on. You can't hold on to that position. The ironic thing of the rise and fall is that the the question, he's so busy accumulating material wealth that he ignores what could have been very easy like if he had been nice to his wife yeah so part of the story is he he marries his wife he kind of seduces her she had an older husband who died of a heart attack after barry insulted him Mm -hmm. um basically she's married to an old guy for money barry insults the guy the guy is already fragile he dies and then 
Barry seduces the woman. He's pretty good. He's pretty slick. And once they're married, there's a scene where they're in a horse and carriage, and he's smoking a pipe, and the wife is annoyed with the smoke. And she's yeah. like, can you please stop smoking? And he just blows smoke in her face even more, directly into her Because she never face. really meant anything to him is the whole idea. Yeah. And it's, in fact, it's he's, very, he's even... You, the, the movie is almost having, like a cartoon where it's very exaggerated uh, visuals. Yeah. But, he's but having, like, all he had to do to have a stuff. nice life is just be nice to his wife. And she would have probably been okay with him uh, fooling around with other women if he had been nice to her. She so this, seemed pretty cool to me. I was yeah, like, oh. But this, this <laughs> theme of self-sabotaging is interesting to me that you, you're so into the... You have such a drive, and then once you arrive at a point and it's actually great, you're like, no, I want more, and then you just start destroying mm-hmm. what you have. Now, like, it, we should have paraphrased also or, like, reminded um, ourselves and our listeners that, like, the movie opens with his father being, like, uh, randomly shot in a duel. And then he later is, like, having an affair with his cousin and is is hurt by, an, a, like, a male suitor like himself that tries to nose in on his family. But mind you, that, that suitor's bringing in wealth. And then they have a duel, which is a fake duel. And then later... Uh, his stepson, you know, disgruntled with how he's ruined the family's wealth. Um, he did have a the point. The Linden wealth. Uh, yeah, he did have a point. Comes back and challenges him to a duel and shoots him in the leg. And that's how he loses the leg and kind of eventually loses everything. But That's his big downfall, yeah. Um, the You know, like, the, the son is also, like, this yeah. weirdly the, entitled... Yeah. <laughs> in the story, to me, there are two ironies. The, the first one is that the... Climbing up the social ladder never uh, made him happy at all. Like he just wanted to go further. And the second thing is, keeping it would have been really simple. It really wasn't that complicated. But just, <laughs> yeah, but I think that again, like it's, that's it's like, not that hard to not blow smoke in your wife's face. No, it's true. And she had asked politely if he could <laughs> pl- please maybe not smoke for the remainder of the journey or something. Yeah, yeah. I did want to mention, like, in the music, if we have a chance here yeah, before we have before to. We have time. Yeah. So, uh, we, you know, the music is. Um, at first, I was I was watching this movie at one point with Kristen. I was like, Jesus, if I hear one more flute track, <laughs> like, I'm yeah. The, crazy. In the beginning, it feels a bit like Lord of the Rings, and like also Celtic the mu- music, and it's on a loop, so it's like it's like yeah. fifteen minutes of the same ten second clip. However, um, there are other parts where the music is, seems incredible. And I think there's like this title track, track that, uh, you know... Dun, it's the sound dun. that comes into the duels, the three duel scenes. Yeah, the Cer- It's Sarabanda by Handel or something like that? Yeah, or, I think so. Um, and then you're like, okay, what's going on here? And apparently it won a bunch of awards for the soundtrack. It is interesting because... Uh, um, Kubrick was very innovative to use classical music in 2001 because mm-hmm. normally in a sci-fi movie you would have futuristic synthesizer music <laughs> and he, there's a famous scene where they're flying across planet Earth and you hear yeah. classical music and it makes it feel like time, you capture all of time instead of just capturing the future. It's like the yeah. whole history of mankind because the music has such a history. Yeah, that's a great But point. here in this movie, of course it's going to be music from that period and the um, like like in Clockwork Orange, he had uh, classical music, but executed on a modern uh, Moog synthesizer, mm-hmm. and give it a, a weird futuristic feeling. Yeah, um, and he and he yeah he used like kind of uh, almost dissonant tones and stuff yeah. like that. Like, but, but here yeah. it just was the the actual music of the time that you would hear in the courts and. But apparently, he did distort the music slightly and modify it from its original. Um, hmm. Comp- the original compositions to yeah. suit the pacing of the film, and and so I guess like the I music- guess he worked with loops and repetition and yeah. Well, what I was going to say is it did eventually have an effect on me. So where I was at first annoyed, eventually it kind of put me in a trance. Yeah, like- I felt the same way in the beginning. <laughs> I was like, I can't get into these actors trying pretending they're in the fields and wearing tights. And, yeah, <laughs> but then by the end, I was just like. I kind of like it's weird because I started to fall asleep and Kristen's like wake up or whatever and you know I was awake anyway I kind of nodded off anyway it, it but is I, I ended up in this trance like a full wakefulness yeah. <laughs> by the end of the movie in, in a sense this movie feels similar to a painting in the same sense that you'd never really get to know the people the actors the the characters 
you never really understand who they are or what they're thinking. It's more like you're viewing them from afar. Yeah, and Kubrick is like um, known as what I think people call him the cold director or something like that, or like, yeah. you know, where he's very hands off and 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 portrays the actor not. Well, maybe that's why him. he doesn't want movie stars with a clear, distinct uh, personality that uh, a personality that is prevalent in multiple directors' creations. He's like, no, this is my character, and I don't want well, I think it's someone great, who played yeah. Superman before to be like, oh, it's Superman, but in the 18th century. I also think thematically, though, it's like a good contrast to last week's episode where the paint, you know, in terms of painting and the history of painting, where it was like trying to capture the soul versus like, no, no, I don't want the soul. It, it is <laughs> interesting don't. if you think about it, like it's very logical if you make a period film that you do research and you look at paintings and etchings. Mm -hmm. But it would be interesting to make a period film that has sort of a Snapchat aesthetic and everything's like AR, but it's in the 17th century. There, oh, I see. Yeah. Well, there. Like, if you watch Emma, which is on Apple, or not on Apple. Um, sorry, that's um, another movie. Uh, there's a television show. Ah, why am I blanking? There's a new movie out. Emma. Take a breath. Take a breath. Yeah. Oh. Calm down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, there's a period. Um, God, what is it? Uh, I'm gonna look it up. I don't know why I'm, I'm having. Yeah, a there's freeze. a movie called Emma, right? Yeah, but that, but there's also a television ser series on Apple TV. Uh, well, Sofia Coppola made that movie that was supposed to be more like a, a punk oh, soundtrack uh, with the. <laughs> terrible! I can't. Don't make me think of another film while I'm trying to think of this one. Um, God. Anyway, you you say something. Oh yeah, Dickinson about Emily Dickinson. It was the Emma part that was. But Dickinson, if you watch that on Apple TV. Um, you know, it has like almost a Snapchat aesthetic. Okay, and she she kind of like doodles and draws, and it's like a teenage kind of movie, but set in the in a period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're thinking of the Sofia Coppola movie, you're thinking of um, the one with uh, Mary Let Antoinette. Them eat cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I think that's just called like Mary Antoinette or something. Like, yeah, it? yeah. It's a Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, the other thing that while I was watching the movie, I was thinking, is this the world we're headed to? Like, was was the 20th century uh, an exception yeah, that it was egalitarian and we're headed to, like, there will be a, a court of the Bezos family and a court of the Gates family? And Well, this is the thing. At the end of the day, like, I think both the story is, that's why people watch period and it's not it things haven't changed that much right so it's a reminder that time actually has stood still and so that's like both comforting and unsettling as we're discussing yeah um and i think you know similarly like humans haven't changed very much either right like we you know yeah. but aesthetics change so that's the interesting thing to me that we mm. watched american psycho and it's yeah. a similar thing they're pretending to work but they're not really working and they're more focused on their tan and the clothes they wear yeah so that's very similar to this and then Silicon Valley has this inventor hardship, hard work uh, image, but oh, that God, actually yeah. might not be true anymore or was never true or whatever. But in terms of aesthetics, if you just look at pictures of like, what did the richest person look like in the 17th century and what does Bill Gates look like? There's a big difference in effort of uh, appearance. Well, I mean, even... Um our Zuckerberg friend started wearing suits recently. <laughs> I was reading an article uh, about it. It's how, only for court cases or he wears it every day now? No, he started wearing it because he started taking on more of like a quote unquote wartime CEO. Is that, maybe it's because he's gaining weight and then it doesn't look so good in a gray t-shirt. I think because of the pandemic, he's like seizing control of the company. That's the narrative. You know, I ultimately, I, I, think, I think it's because he's gaining weight. <laughs> it, it really doesn't look good when you're uh, after a certain age to wear a t-shirt. I think you're right. I have to watch out for that. Personally, I catch my I catch a reflection <laughs> well, in a window from time to time. I'm like, what? That's me. You know Tom Wolf, the the writer. Yeah, he was always in a white suit, and he said one of the mistakes people make is they think if you dress young, you look young, but it's actually the opposite. If you are young and you wear old people's clothes, you look younger. <laughs> yeah, like if you're in a really nice suit, but you're 15, like you look more confident than like a 50 year old guy in a hoodie. Yeah, I mean, I got to wear... Well, I think now, though, isn't the sweatsuit... It's ageless. Everyone wears sweatsuits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, but, but So that's what I think is interesting with this idea of progress, like especially art historically. As far as uh, 
the skill of depicting things photographically, I don't think we moved forward. I think the average skill level of the visual artist is. So then if you look at fashion, if we went from what they were wearing in the Barry Lyndon movie all the way down to Juicy Couture. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting to think about. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would counter is I think we we did move forward in terms of subject. So, you know, the maybe not craft, but like subject has evolved significantly because the person paying for the work shifted to a certain extent. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but that's... And, and I'm not saying that uh, Mozart was more brilliant than Chuck Berry. I think Chuck Berry has that song, uh, Roll Over Beethoven. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying <laughs> one has more skill than the other, whatever. It's just an interesting idea, like, what what is progress? It's like going from... Well, especially of that time, because yeah, they were but, really obsessed with progress during that yeah. time. Yeah. But is going from Beethoven to rock and roll to SoundCloud rap, is what he, I'm not yeah. saying it, it's, it's regressive or progressive or whatever, but I just think this idea of linear progress is, it helps people thinking like, yeah, I'm going to work hard so my children have a better life, but like, by what measure? Yeah, I think it's built into human psychology that there's a desire, especially right now. Everyone's probably experiencing this in the pandemic, but there's a desire for we'll get through um, this some, and we'll learn from it and things. Well, will not only that, but to look forward to something. And yeah. you know, psychologically speaking, people apparently anticipate that the future is going to be better than the past, even though it's statistically that's always untrue. So, mm. so like you know, and when we look back on the past you know, we see things better than they were, right? So Yeah, yeah. and the future's always scary, scarier than the past, even if this, the past was worse. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, fear is a powerful thing because it's based in, you know, the anxiety of the unknown. And again, yeah. like this control that Kubrick has, I think, is appropriate to that conversation, which is like, the more control we can express, you know, it, that's part of the human yeah. desire for progress is the expression of control. And, and especially in the pandemic, it turns out we don't have that much control. In the, yeah, that's what's so hard for people. Yeah. You know? well, Christina yeah. was watching the movie with me, and she's like, wow, this is such a feel-bad movie. <laughs> really? <laughs> so it's she such wasn't a bummer laughing. ending, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, they could have done the movie in reverse. I, they, <laughs> I guess they could have been about him eventually getting back to his rural Yeah, society. and being like, hey, this is not bad, sitting on the field in the picking apples well i think um maybe that's a good segue into the film that i want to choose for next week (laughs) (laughs) we'll go to another period yeah exactly like you know all of this period in reverse i kind of want to look at period in the future and look at some sci-fi and um i think you know we're mixing new movies with some old ones and then some recent ones this is one that probably everyone saw, I think, you know, from not that long ago, but long enough ago now that it, I think it, it four warrants, years ago. Yeah, like five, four or five years ago. It warrants reevaluation. Um, and that is um, the latest Mad Max movie. Um, and I was reading a reevaluation of it, which triggered the thought, in addition to us, like, talking about, you know, period stuff and me thinking, God, I need some sci fi in my life. Um, and yeah, I think it's. Let's. I don't want to talk. We don't about have to review it, but uh, we yeah, just everybody now. watch the new, uh, the newest Mad, Mad Max, Max movie, or the latest one, Part Four, The Road Warrior, Val, no, Valhalla, Road War. Valhalla. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much to talk about. I think once we get into it um, next week, that I'm looking sound forward design, to. light design, just like the sheer like it's considered one of the most difficult. Like so, this movie. It's that like how far watched, can you go? Yeah. It's considered one of the most difficult shoots of all time. So yeah, yeah like let's uh, let's. Let's pick that up. Let's um, unpack that. Yeah. And um, thank you for listening. If thank you've you. made it this yeah. far. <laughs> oh, yeah. A reminder for those who do make it this far. We do still um, take input and um, we take ads. Like if we, you have something you just <laughs> We want. read your emails, but we don't change our behavior. Yeah, sure we do. But we can review <laughs> movies that you suggest. No one suggested anything. So uh, either they hate our suggestions or they're Well, just someone suggested Jojo Rabbit, but then I didn't like it so much. Oh, really? Kristen suggested it too. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good movie. I would I would watch it if I beg <laughs> to differ, it. but I, I I couldn't get through it. Yeah. If you know that guy, Watiti's other works too. He's got it's a good. Uh, anyway, well, we can yeah. talk about that another time. Um, Jeremy has a free reign on uh, half the mo- uh, 
every other episodes week. and then I we can't veto each other. <laughs> yeah, so the way you put it was once every other week I get to be excited and then I <laughs> and then next I have week is suffer. homework. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, but I, this week I'll I enjoy think, Mad well, Max. Yeah. Okay, good. Um anyway, looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. Send in your ads, send in your suggestions. Keep um keep talking to us cuz we enjoy hearing from you. Yeah. And stay um oh, take risks is what Raphael said. So despite the pandemic, it's still important to take risks, not with your health with your work yeah why not with your ideas um yeah okay till next week till next week bye bye bye